Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode 335, Thursday, February the 29th, 2024. And Mark, we've had a bit of a hot spell last week or two. And as I speak, we still have some bushfires, which some people call in the rest of the world wildfires, I suppose. Um, East, uh, west of um, the Ballarat region here, Mark. Still a fair way away from Melbourne Central, but um, it's always a worry, the bushfires. They're pretty severe bushfires from what I hear too, Brendan. There's been a few houses go down and um, and uh, farmers in the region have been encouraged to move out of their homes. And I heard one report that suggested some of the worst fires there uh, would not be put out for three weeks. So, yeah, that's pretty fierce. Yes, and there's decent. So when you sort of look at the size of these um, fires in area markets, um, a bit, <laughs> it's amazing. So, yeah, hopefully they'll get under control soon and touch wood, no loss of life so far, and hopefully not um, with this particular fire mark. Now, Maybe onto something a little bit um, less dramatic, and that's um, or it might be dramatic. Um, you want to chat to me about um, something you've been up to? I wanted to tell you what I've been doing today. We've been out. I've been out with the uh, People for Wildlife team. That's the conservation group I uh, volunteer with up here at the very tip of Cape York, um, and uh, we've been going into habitat and setting up complex camera traps, Brendan. We've been uh, they're, they're, uh, the, the traps consist of uh, a two cameras and a sound recorder. And this is the bit that really has fascinated me today, that, uh, that there now are excellent devices which can record the soundscape for you know, programmable periods of time. So um, these are an excellent way to identify the birds in an area, maybe some of the cryptic species, but even more, the bats and frogs uh yeah so uh, i've been um, brushing up on my oral a-u-r-a-l skills um so that i can uh i've got a bit of a grasp of the frogs and the birds up here i'm the bats are uh, a little bit more difficult and uh yeah so it's been fun sticking those out in the bush clearing up sites setting up uh star pickets and and zip tying the cameras to them so that we can uh, uh we can get a bit of a survey of the animals in the vicinity now you mentioned fancy traps mark um what we what, what, do you want to elaborate a little bit about the these camera traps um what is fancy about them or, or elaborate about them well, I suppose the key thing about them, we call them camera traps, but they don't catch anything, of course, except an image of the animal. But I call them fancy because they're uh, weatherproof. Uh, they're they're um, uh, very difficult for the rodent, rodents up here. Uh, there is the white-tailed rat up here, Brendan. Uh, the Cape York white-tailed rat is averages a kilogram and um, has a particular taste for plastic uh, 
regularly chewing holes in, in critical engine parts up here on the Cape. Um, but these camera casings, they uh, they defy the white-tailed rats and the malomus that live up here. And, um, and yeah, they, they take outstanding uh, images. Um, they've got uh, uh, nighttime capabilities, uh, taking infrared shots. Um, and the, the sound recordings in particular are, are just such high quality sound recordings that uh, that you can you can identify the species, which are yeah, pretty amazing bits of kit, just wrapped up in a almost like a you know the sort of thing that folds over and clips shut, and then yeah. um, and then they're little, they're only about the size of your mobile phone, so there's three of them zip tied to a star picket. You wouldn't think that they uh, they were able to collect much data all at all, but programmable and and so we can set them up so that they take images at, only at night, for example. Um, take a, a sound, the way the sound ones are set up, because you can get so much time information, like such a volume of information about the sounds that it quickly becomes unmanageable. And despite AI, it's not good, not easy to process that volume of, uh, of data. So um, trying to do pick particular time frames that give uh, better noise and having devices that uh, can be programmed to select those times. Uh, get the morning chorus when the birds are all rolling around, um, a few hours in the early, a few periods of time in the early evening, over a few hours to get frogs and bats and things. Yeah, it's, a, it's very, very cool. Excellent. Not jealous, Mark. Now we want to <laughs> we want to briefly mention uh, uh, Nick, who um, we chatted about briefly. Um, I haven't got the email in front of me, Mark. Uh, about the frilled neck lizards, we had yes. a chat about the frilled neck lizard. Oh, there we go. I found it now. Um, and I, I think I made a mention. I said, "Look, um, give us an update, Nick." And um, uh, with a couple of things, and I suggested maybe he'd let us know how much they go for sale there in the US of A. And he he did mention, Mark, they typically go for three to four hundred dollars for those youngsters. I would have thought they'd be a lot more than that, would you, Mark? Yeah, I, I think the trick, though, Brendan, is that um, they're probably not as scarce as you and I suspect, because I think from particularly from West Papua. Uh, there, there is a, a process that I think is legal. Certain animals can be exported legally from uh, West Papua to America. So there's probably a constant uh, source that way of, uh, of these animals and that might serve to keep the price down a little bit rather than if they, you know, some of the animals that are endemic to Australia where they can't be legal, legally exported and the price is exorbitant as a consequence. Yes. It's um, interesting too, I, I thought his comments were rather insightful in that um, probably the majority of those juveniles, those baby I do find when I was in uh, New South Wales in practice, the, the frilled neck lizards I saw there, geez, almost all of them were suffering some degree of metabolic bone disease. They have very exacting requirements for, for nutrition and light as hatchlings, and um, it's easy to stuff that up absolutely for the rest of their life. So uh, 
and look, it's an interesting topic. I, the number of reptiles that die as juveniles in captivity compared to the ones that might die as juveniles in the wild. I wonder what a study would make of that, but I agree with him that the majority of juvenile frillies in captivity don't make it to a glorious old age. Yep. I agree 100%. And thank you for the update, Nick. We always look forward to those and um, send us any more regarding that particular patient that you're following at the moment. That would be fantastic. Mike, I think there was one quick uh, news story we wanted to talk about. Do you want to take that as well? I did want to quickly mention the uh, – Brendan, you know – my general cynicism with respect to news stories and particularly clickbait. So uh, this headline says, one of the holy grails of shark science. Watch the first ever footage of baby great white shark moments after birth. Now, what's happened here is some researchers have been droning off uh, the coast of California and, and they found... A, a tiny five-foot uh, white, well, ghostly white or coloured white shark. Um, and uh, uh, this little shark demonstrated the thin characteristics, thin and short uh, in stature but with rounded fins. And this is a trait that's been seen in embryo great whites that... Um, that uh, that have been, you know, that the sharks have been captured and opened up, and and they've found embryos in them. And the other thing was that it was entirely white, which is consistent with those uh, great white shark embryos. Um, and so the the conclusion is that fortuitously, these researchers have flown a drone over a, a great white shark that um, that was within only a few hours of uh, being born. It spooked um, it to give birth, probably, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> just they quietly. Didn't, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't get the chance to get the syntocin in because just the fright made her pop the baby out. Yes. So, yeah, I, I think you were going to, by the sound of your introduction there, you're going to say you weren't particularly um, enamoured with the... Um, with the article there, and um, I must admit I didn't find it particularly um, dramatic, um, the drone footage there, but um, I think for, a, for a, a great white shark researcher, they're probably thinking they have discovered the Holy Grail, I suppose, Mark, if they haven't, um, haven't witnessed something like this um, previously, um, assuming it is a um, recently born um, great white. Well, I think the, the key thing here is that pelagic, gigantic pelagic animals like this, it is going to be very hard to just, you know, that one moment. It's just luck if you're there at the time an animal like this gives birth in an environment where, um, you know, humans aren't ordinarily around. Um, it's just uh, good fortune. And look, I don't, it, like you said, I think it is good fortune that they were there at that time. Yeah, it's 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 all consistent with what they already knew about the the um the the fetus that this is exactly what they'd expect in a freshly minted great white. Uh, it's good to know, and it's interesting to know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that holy grails. Uh, they're just prone to 
hyperbole and exaggeration. And look, I also understand these poor researchers, you know, they need clout. They need to bridge the the psychom gap and, and get their information out to the general public and the mainstream media to maintain funding for their programs. So they've got to do it. It's a game. I understand it. But I don't have to approve of it, Brendan. <laughs> well, that's very harsh, Mark. But I do agree with you. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on to our main topic this week. And it's a bit of a hodgepodge, this one, Mark. Um, I thought <laughs> we'd throw this one in. A um, bit of a summary of – because I, I don't know about you, but it's a fairly frequently reported uh, presenting sign in, in pet lizards, Mark, and that's chronic eye discharge um, in these animals. And uh, it, they may even be present, you know, unaware the client that that they have this with that because they may have even purchased it with this chronic eye discharge do you see a fair number of these mark or have seen these i think it was insightful for you to make this a topic for us to talk about because it is a, a very common presenting sign and and as you said there may be times when we're doing a general health assessment on a newly acquired lizard or even one that someone's owned for a while and and we'll say, oh, that that particular aspect of the eye, the discharge, the shape, the the colour of the conjunctiva, that's not normal. Um, and as you said, you don't know it's not normal till you know what normal is. And a lot of people that have these reptiles, um, they're new to the game and they don't know that it's it's not right. So so yes, it is a very very common presenting sign. So. What do we do, Mark? What do we do? So um, let's work through the workup that you and I would perform on these. Um, and obviously the one that we always harp on, Mark, we hammer home every single time is a full clinical exam. So looking at everything else because I'm jumping ahead to one of the one of the um, key factors with these, uh, it's there's often concurrent diseases going on there, not just in the eyes there, Mark. And we're looking for we're looking for underlying health problems and, um, as usual, husbandry issues with this as well. So we're doing a full clinical exam on the Mark, um, and, which includes, especially Mark, um, which relates to these um, eye problems, is looking in the mouth. Why would we do that, Mark? Well, it's um, it's it, and it is ex- what you say is exactly true. We've got to make sure we look at the whole animal, uh, but particularly looking in the oral cavity because there are many times that pathologies in the uh, oral cavity can um, work their way um, up the respiratory tract into the nasal cavity, um, and even uh, gain access through the eustachian tubes to the space uh, in around the eye, and so. Um, that pathway can be um, very easily the case. And so just checking that mouth out thoroughly, um, making sure that there's no problems there to lead to the issues with the eye. Yes. Now, obviously, we are going to have a bit of a look in those eyes, Mark, or at those eyes. My The good news there is the general equipment that you can use is exactly what you'd have in any any clinic, not just a small animal or exotics clinic, Mark, and that includes some sort of magnification there. I like to also use a little, one of those little like monocular, uh, what, do you, what do you call them? 
magnifying glass type structures that you use for ophthalmology marks. So I use that in order to enhance um, the view from an ophthalmoscope mark. Um, and I also use it with a incident light with using it with the notoscope, the little otoscope um, without the otoscope combs on there, just just the light source there, Mark, yes. and, and using that little magnifying there, and we can, I can manage to once you get the sort of focal length correct, um, it, you get a very good, um, very good view of the um, of the eye there. So we assess the eye, um, everything from the conjunctiva to the cornea there. Um, at some stage, I'll be doing a a um, a popping a little bit of fluorescein stain in there, Mark, um, because we are potentially um, trying to assess whether there's any corneal damage there as well um, with them. Um, we might, I might go back one step um, if I think that the, the discharge um, is not looking very nice there and do a swab um, initially, Mark, before we start putting putting things in that eye. Um, how, do you, how do you find, like, so let's say we've got that eye, it's got a maybe looks yellowish, mucopurulent, maybe a good description um, at the medial canthus. Do you just grab a big chunk of that stuff and smear that on the microscope or do you have another technique to get a it's, it's a bit sample? Of a- yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it? And because virtually most of these um, animals are pretty small, if you just pull out a normal um, culture swab there, the, the, the tip of the swab is, you know, probably twice or three times the size of the eye there and you, you're probably going to get some contamination um, and, and not going to be able to get a sample just pure from, you know, in the, in the fornix there of the eye. So so one option there is um, trying to get little swabs that are smaller little tips there, the cotton tips of them, um, or trying to do something else like even, and I don't know whether this is what you were trying to get me to go down the, this track, but... Um, I'll go down this track anyway. <laughs> it's using a a uh, a little fine one mil syringe mark without any needle on it, and just grab, sucking up a bit of a sample there um, for it. But but here I'd probably be doing a couple of things there. Um, one is making some smears there, and the other one is I'm pop, popping it into a bit of transport media there for a potential um, sending off for either cultural or um, or viral testing. Mark, um, what about yourself? Yeah, and I think the ones that, uh, the swabs that I find useful are those uh, uh, wire, I think they're Euro, we, we uh, generally purchase them for uh, chlamydia tests. I think they're urethral swabs. They're just right. a very thin wire with a tiny uh, cotton tip at the end. And they regularly, you can buy them with, you know, with without any medium, or you can get a little medium in the bottom of, a, of the tube they come out of and pop it in that. And uh, yeah, I find those to be exceptionally useful. Useful uh, little bits of extra kit to get those samples easy to roll up under the lids, and maybe avoid some of the external contaminants when you are trying to get a sample. Yes. Having said that, I think it can can be potentially unrewarding mark um, yes. um as as far as it, what what you may get back with it with especially with the culture with these but um, again i'm jumping jumping ahead of myself here so <laughs> let's um so we we, we, put, we do our eye exam 
other equipment that we might be using or, or gear that we use. I might, might, if it looks particularly sore there, Mark, I'd, I'd be putting a bit of um, local anaesthetic drops on there, yes. alkane or something like that. I will be doing a a fluorescein stain at some stage to look in to see what's happening with that cornea, if we have any obvious um, corneal ulceration there. And what else, Mark? Um, well, potentially a bit more invasive things. We might be doing a little con conjunctival, um, snipping off a little bit of yeah. conjunctiva if it's swollen, et cetera, for, for, for analysis there as well. But they're the basics of, of what I do with the mark. As a routine, I do not do... I do not do um, Shermer tear test sort of um, um, tests. I, I just one. I, I, I don't think we have any decent sort of um, 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 normal values um, for for the species that we commonly see there. Um, and I suppose one other method of trying to assess that nasolacrimal duct type system is seeing what happens with that fluorescein dye mark um, after several minutes wisdom. Is there anything else you would do um, with that clinical exam or workup of these cases, Mark? No, I think you've, you've nailed it all pretty well, Brendan. I did have a question though. Um, what about um, what about when you look in that mouth, what are the things that you would look for just to, to, to give you a clue that it might be complicit in a problem that's going on in the eye? What, what well, we're looking for anything abnormal in that mouth, especially in the, on the roof of the mouth, the maxillary region there and where, where things are all um, draining there. Um, um, so we're looking for inflammation, changes in, in normal coloration um, in, in, in those animals um, and, yeah, any sort of stomatitis or, or, yeah. or dental disease, et cetera, that, that's going on there. Um, and, you know, looking broader with them. These ones may not just be um, obviously eye problems, as I've mentioned at the start. So we're, we're, we're looking on that full clinical exam, any signs of general respiratory distress. Um, and and we're obviously then going to dig a little bit deeper with our um, workup with those and doing things like blood screens and potential radiographs of the chest and all those sorts yep. of things as well, Mark. Yeah, so... Let's talk about some of the potential causes and then the treatment and management and, and also the prevention of them. Um, you know, the obvious ones there, we do see what um, um, the classic sort of just simple, what I call the fairly simple ones where they've had some sort of trauma or corneal ulceration, they've been in a fight with a cage mate or they've whacked their little eye or, or, or they have a foreign body. You occasionally yep. see ones with foreign body there um, and, and a classic. And we I work it up like a typical sort of corneal ulceration case, um, you know, putting them on some um, pain relief there, some, some lubricants type eye drops plus or minus maybe a, a little bit of a... Um, anti-inflammatory or, or cortisone-based eye drop, depending on what, what species and how severe I think things are or not. Um, I may may add, add that or not, depending on how much ulceration we have there and whether I think it's contraindicated to use a, a particular anti-inflammatory. And same as far as whether I use a, a um, an antibacterial or not with the mark. So it's sort of juggling all of those sorts of things that we do you know, very similar to, I suppose, even a, you know, classic corneal ulcer in a dog or a cat or a rabbit, Mark. 
There is some, um, in my experience, um, it is surprising how many of the lizards that have uh, discharges will have corneal ulceration. And certainly you're right, um, I have had bearded dragons that there is a history of a uh, fight with a uh, cage mate or a other cohabitant and and you can see it's a traumatic laceration of the cornea. There are the some of the fossorial lizards that we see, our blue tongues and whatnot, their tendency to get down in the substrate and wiggle around does probably expose expose them to trauma. And I definitely have seen um, irritant keratitis uh, in blue tongues, particularly in in with some. Uh, um, uh, chemical cleansers that might not have been appropriately aired out or maybe even some of the substrates that are very oil-rich, um, those things can irritate the cornea enough that you um, start to get a bit of a graze effect and the fluorescein will stay there. So yeah. I've been, always been surprised how many of them do have a degree of corneal ulceration or abrasion. Yep. Let's... <laughs> Talk about the um, potential bacterial uh, conjunctivitis sort of complexes we see with them, and and we will see things a little bit different than these um, lizards compared with our other species, Mark. So we'll see um, bugs like Pseudomonas, Aeromonas, uh, Mycoplasma, etc. There, and that's where, in theory, we'd be sending off that swab and and getting that full culture there. But as I sort of hinted at. Previously, they one they can be a little bit fastidious to grow, or or probably poor swab technique by myself, and you might end up with a contamination there, Mark. So, so um, otherwise, we may be just trying to select a select an antibiotic that may hit um, those those commonly reported um, bacteria there. So, um, I think a, I've I've had more good fortune with you know I'll take that. A bit of a swab, roll it on a slide, then stick it in the container and send it away. And on the slide, I'll be fairly confident I've got, you know, gram-negative bugs um, giving me, you know, a, a, a solid growth of gram-negative bugs amongst the debris. And like you said, you send it off and you don't grow anything. In those cases, I have no trouble um, arming up, as it were, and... and uh, preparing with the big guns for pseudomonas or aeromonas. Yep. What other causes, Mark? What are the other causes that we see uh, with these chronic eye discharges in these lizards? Well, for a long time um, I was um, diagnosing on suspicion mycoplasma-type problems, but um, more recently we've been able to get some DNA stuff done and, and confirmed mycoplasma, particularly in a number of blue tongue cases we've been dealing with. And so um, that's been uh, increasingly on my list of, uh, of potential differential diagnoses. Um, I also have turned out a couple of cases where we've had uh, tissue samples. You mentioned that sort yes. of hyphema. Uh, we get a, um, a big, uh, large amount of, of exuberant conjunctival. We're able to get a little nip of that. Um, we've had a couple of those cases that have had mycobacteria in the in the sample that we've taken. So uh, mycoplasma and mycobacteria are uh, things to keep an eye out for. Yes, yes. Good point, Mark. Good point. 
what viral issues might be happening in these animals, Mark, and, and I suppose we talked a little bit more specifically about one we commonly see here in Australia, Mark. We, well, we definitely see uh, it's been a really exciting thing over the last, I suppose, 10 years to have elucidated um, the cause of uh, um, so-called bobtail flu. There's been a recognised syndrome, particularly, I think it started, Brendan, with rescuers in um, in Western Australia who were finding these lizards in the wild and... Uh, and there's a bit of a protocol for those wildlife re- rehabbers to recover those lizards. But recently it's been identified that there's a nidovirus at the root cause of that problem. And and it is reasonably common. I've seen it in a number of uh, Taliqua and, uh, and related species, the blue tongues and, and members from their family. And, uh, and, yeah, that's one of the first things to keep an eye out for. Do you see that? virus yeah. Yeah. yeah and as as you and i know mark here in australia we set, we send off the swabs to get that um, pcr test over to over to perth and tim uh, who has uh, has his gear there to run the pcr test there mark and we'll talk about um, what we do with that result um in in a sec there mark but we've all, we've also got a few other potential causes of these um chronic eye discharges there mark and the other one one of the other ones i want to touch on and it sort of is part of the complex of the poor husbandry there mark um is and and it's something that people often forget in lizards in these pet lizards here mark a lot of the a lot of us will know about the thought of this condition hypovitaminosis a in in chelonians mark but um it certainly can occur in um lizards as well mark so um, low vitamin A, Mark, um, can cause chronic changes there in the eye and we end up with this chronic eye discharge as well and that's tied back to the typically the husbandry issues with them. Dear, I, my gut feeling is that I, since uh, graduating and being conscious of these uh, dietary problems, I reckon that's become far less of a problem. Like I, that, that would be a very regular thing for me to have seen when I was a much younger veterinarian, but I, I don't see it nearly as much these days. What's your read on that? Yeah, good point. Still see it, but I think it's tied back to once you've got that history from the client with the yeah. uh, history sheet and you think, gee, this is crap, <laughs> <laughs> what they've been feeding it and, and um, you know, lighting, heating, everything. You start thinking, oh, okay, I'm not surprised. They brought it in because it's been a bit fussy with its eating and then you quiz them on the, the chronic eye discharge and they say, oh, well, he's had that for months or years. You know, I thought that was normal. You know? um, so, yes, um, but it, but I think you're, yeah, I'd, I'd agree in that generally it's less common um, than, than we used to see, Mark, with it. Um, what else do we see, Mark? What other ones have you seen? And one 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 that I'm going to jump in, uh, one of these is... <laughs> I love it when you answer your own questions. Is, um, <laughs> the UV light-related ones because oh, yes. um, this is a good, classic, classic one, one where we get excessive exposure to the UVB and that might be using an incorrect UV um, lamp or having a perching area, a basking area that's too close to that UV lighting mark. Um, and I've had a couple of classic cases 
where its lizards sort of have tended to sit with one eye in particular facing out towards the you know glass front of the enclosure and the other eyes um towards the, the light um and that's the one that ends up with the issue mark um and we end up with this you know constant you know keratitis and and conjunctival issues and and even progressing on to you know squamous cell carcinomas around the eye region i, th- I reckon in my experience that's becoming more common more prevalent and it's probably a reflection of people buying uh reptiles maybe through a pet store and getting some of the information and maybe even the poor pet store uh has had to change suppliers you know covid world supply chain problems and so they have uh lights that have come from manufacturers that they are unfamiliar with and then everyone's trying to do the right thing and the poor lizard ends up with with sunburnt eyes. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that I, I reckon that's that particular circumstance is on the rise. Yep. Fungal infections, Mark, do you see any of these causing sort of chronic eye conditions and conjunctivitis and, and I discharge? They, I know they're published, but I can't tell you that we do see a lot of uh, um, candida or other the the bearded dragon funguses, the uh, um, uh, the yellow fungus that the bearded dragons get, uh, and an easy opsis. Um, I don't I don't see as many of those cases, Brendan. Do you see fungal etiologies with your discharging eyes? Very occasionally, mm. yeah, very occasionally with them. So what do but we do? The good thing about fungal etiologies, I know you're trying to get us, it's that if you take (laughs) a good sample and put it on a slide and send it off, you will find it out. And so that speaks to getting the swabs and and, uh, taking them early before contamination becomes overwhelming. Move on, Brendan. Yes. Treatment, management, Mark. Um, <laughs> this is the fun bit, isn't it? Well, bottom line is a lot of these are long-term issues um, that we may not completely resolve if we have long-term changes in that eye, Mark. Um, so obviously we won't want to address any underlying um, issues going on there and um, especially those husbandry sort of issues we we um, mentioned there, Mark, and it's really for the majority of these, um, which includes those those viral ones, Mark. We're 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 almost certainly not going to cure them, are we? I think there are, the, as you said, some of those viral problems are managed and not cured. I think that um, that there's only a small like those ones we spoke about at the beginning, the lacerations, the grays type corneal ulcerations, um, I reckon you've got a good chance of getting those under control. But um, many of the other ones, particularly once you start getting infections, the chronic nature means scarring changes the structure, the the anatomy of the eye, and then you're prone to recurrence or prone to um, the same problem not not actually leaving but just uh, going into remission. So, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Prepare the, the uh, owner of that animal for uh, resolution uh, being a, a possibility uh, but um, recurrence being a likelihood. Yes, and we... Yeah, yeah, I say exactly that to them. You know, we, we try and manage it with the supportive care um, and treatment methods that we'll chat about in a sec, um, which are quite simple, a lot of these. 
and it might settle back down and then we we, um, we may see flare-ups um, in the future and we you know we really concentrate on all the things like you know proper diet and, and cleaning and, and general husbandry as well um, and the simple things that that I always mention to the clients it's, it can be just simply bathing those eyes mark um, two or three two to you know six times a day initially I suppose depending on how severe it is and that can just be with a bit of warm water it's well amazing. I find that I've, I've got a bit of a technique that um, I've I've been taught I wonder if it's similar to what you do but I find if I get maybe um, uh, sp- uh, sp- one of those swabs that we use in hospital or a makeup remover pad, I drench it in hot water, as hot as I can stand, Brendan, and then I hold it against the eye. I find that that does help immensely. There's that little bit of stuff that uh, washes out of the eye. Um, the water that washes out of the swab washes stuff out of the eye. And the higher temperature, I think it, denatures the protein in the mucus and makes it easier to remove. It increases local blood flow and therefore hopefully allows more antibodies and and whatnot to get to the area. But I like your idea of the simple things are the place to start and a, a hot compress on the eye six times a day ah. often makes a huge difference. Is that why it's so good when you're on an international flight, Mark, and they give you the hot, hot ta- towel? <laughs> As, as you always get in business or first class, Mark, as, as in um, economy never seem to get it, but, and you're sitting there with that hot towel over your eyes. Gee, it's, it's nice, isn't it? Oh, it's pleasant. <laughs> yes, so bathing the eyes, um, what other supportive care um, do you sometimes advise for these, Mark? I mean, I, I, I'm jumping in again, answering my own question. <laughs> Anti-inflammatories, I might put them on a, a short course of a, a um, meloxicam, for instance, Mark, or, or injectable, depending on the species. I, I, I find if the if that eye looks really angry, we've got a, um, a red um, conjunctivitis, a uh, hyperemia sort of going on there, I'd, I'd be popping them on that. What, what else do you consider? Well, one of the other things I regularly do is make sure I uh, take them out of a substrate-rich environment and keep them just on a... a you know, a plain, uh, generally paper, uh, paper towel is for a, a yeah. week or two because um, even if the substrate is not part of the etiology, the dust, the the other contaminants from the substrate are going to complicate the problem. So taking that out of the picture at an early stage is a good thing. Yes, yes. And, you know, if we have... have uh, done some um, lab testing and we we've come back with a um, suspect um, agent bacterial or otherwise then then we'd, we'd potentially be reaching for an appropriate um, medication to use as well yep. with them yeah. prevention of this mark um, we've sort of touched on this but what's the summary of the prevention to try and stop these chronic eye discharge um, lizards coming into our clinic well, I like to really recommend uh, regular health checks because I think uh, I would emphasise to my clients that um, we get to look at lots more eyes than they do and so we're likely to see things that are unusual before they do. I can't emphasise enough the quarantine, Brendan, because of those things like viruses and mycoplasmas, uh, new new acquisitions to a collection must be uh, uh, kept distant 
uh, both in space and time from the rest of the collection. Um, and there must be a, a process that limits the flow of, of uh, clothing or personnel from um, new animals to the collection before there's a shower or whatever involved. So quarantine is really important. And yep. when those quarantine periods need to be uh, tailored to the species and the likely viral um, agents, uh, amongst other infectious agents that they might be carrying, um, and um, and so yeah, uh, a, a good quarantine period. In the whole uh, husbandry, a review of the husbandry so that um, the animals get adequate exercise, that they get adequate exposure to a wide thermal uh, um, uh, range, that they can manage their uh, body temperature, um, appropriate humidity to the species. Yes, um, I was going to say humidity, Mark, and I think that's a really important one yeah, that we yeah. forget about, depending on the species, that they may need a, a really high humidity or, or, or not so high, um, and that can certainly influence some of these chronic eye issues. Great point. And I think the, the key thing I would, that um, I'd emphasise in closing is that uh, those questionnaires, I love your wonderful questionnaires for clients and they're uh, getting a grasp on all the aspects of their husbandry and tailoring an all-encompassing uh, husbandry solution for these problems. I think that's a really important thing because there's nothing more frustrating for a client than um, something really obvious in the husbandry being missed and the problem persisting despite old you know, expensive medications and testing. So um, uh, make sure you, you get a good history and physical exam to build the pyramid of success with treating these eyes. The pyramid of success, Mark. I'm going to mention that to the next client that walks in. Um, and after they look at me perplexed, I'll say, um, <laughs> I'll try and explain to them what we mean by that. But I think it, as, as we mentioned, it's pretty, it's very important to mention to the clients with these um, lizards that come in that, um, hey, but this may come back again, or we may never get rid of the chronic eye discharge completely with this animal. So um, you need to really get across to them that it's probably going to be a, hopefully not too regular occurrence um with their lizard mark any final comments before we get out of here mark my final comment is you know that this doesn't apply to geckos don't you brendan yes <laughs> we will um talk about geckos Explore that in another podcast in another podcast thanks for the spanner in the works there mark we'll talk <laughs> to you all next week for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time